Welcome back, everybody. Today is Thursday. It is the 27th of October. We are going to continue reviewing this excellent article titled The Real Story Behind Drag Queen Story Hour. We're calling this part two. And the author, of course, is Christopher Rufo. Such positions are hardly idiosyncratic within the discipline of queer theory. The father figure of the ideology, Foucault, whom Rubin relies upon for her philosophical grounding, was a notorious sadomasochist who once joined the scores of other prominent intellectuals to sign a petition to legalize adult-child sexual relationships in France. Like Rubin, Foucault haunted the underground sex scene in the Western capitals and reveled in transgressive sexuality. Quote, it could be that the child with his own sexuality may have desired that adult. He may even have consented. He may even have made the first moves. Foucault once told an interviewer on the question of sex between adults and minors. He continued, and to assume that a child is incapable of explaining what happened and was incapable of giving his consent are two abuses that are intolerable, quite unacceptable, unquote. Rubin's American compatriots made the same argument even more explicitly. Longtime Rubin collaborator Pat Califia, who would later become a transgender man, claimed that American society had turned pedophiles into the new communists, the new niggers, the new witches for Califia, age of consent laws, religious sexual mores, and families who police the sexuality of their children represented a thousand pound bulwark against sexual freedom. You can't liberate children and adolescents without disrupting the entire hierarchy of adult power and coercion and challenging hegemony of anti-sex fundamentalist religious values, she lamented. All of it, the family, the law, the religion, the culture, was a vector of oppression, and all of it had to go. The second prerequisite for understanding Drag Queen Story Hour is to understand the historical development of the art of drag. It begins with a freed slave named William Dorsey Swan, who dressed in elaborate silk and satin women's costumes, called himself the Queen of Drag, and organized sexually charged soirees in his home in Washington, D.C. Over the course of his life, Swan was convicted of petty larceny. He had stolen books from a library and dinnerware from a private residence, and then in 1896 was charged with keeping a disorderly house, a euphemism for running a brothel, and sentenced to 300 days in jail. From the viewpoint of modern sexual politics, the story has all the elements of the perfect left-wing archetype. Swan was a man who liberated himself from chattel slavery and then from a repressive sexual culture, despite the best efforts of the oppressors, 
the Puritans, and the police. Drag became explicitly political seven decades later. During the Stonewall Riots of 1969, in which patrons of a gay bar in New York City rioted against police and began a wave of gay and lesbian political activism. As writer Daniel Harris explained in the counterculture journal Salamagundi, traditional drag performances from William Dorsey Swan until the mid-1960s were sensual experiences, an innocuous camp pastime. But with the onset of the sexual revolution, they became forms of resistance and revolution. After the 1960s, Harris wrote, ideology tightened its grip on the aesthetic of drag when gay men began to use their costumes to reevaluate the whole concept of normality and thus carry out a crucial part of the cross-dresser's agenda, revenge. Drag performers increasingly saw their vocation as political and started street organizations such as Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries in order to join the wave of activism rising through their communities in New York, San Francisco, and other hubs. Suddenly, drag was not a private performance, but a statement, a public rebellion. The queens began using costume and performance to mock the fashion, manners, and mores of middle America. In time, the need to shock required the performers to push the limits. Men now wear sexually explicit outfits as ball gowns with prosthetic breasts sewn onto the outside of the dresses, black nighties with gigantic strap-on dildos, and transparent vinyl miniskirts that reveal lacy panties with strategic rips and telltale stains, suggestive of deflowerment. Harris noted, the less drag is meant to allure, the bawdier it becomes, with men openly massaging their breasts, squeezing the bulges of their G-strings, sticking out their asses and tongues like porn stars in heat, and lying spread eagle on their backs on parade routes with their helium heels flung into the air and their virginal prom dresses thrown over their heads. The next critical turn occurred in 1990 with the publication of Gender Trouble by the queer theorist Judith Butler. Gender Trouble was a bombshell. It elevated the discourse around queer sexuality from the blunt rhetoric of Gail Rubin to a realm of highly abstract and sometimes impenetrable intellectualism. Butler's essential contribution was twofold. First, she saturated queer theory with postmodernism. Second, she provided a theory of social change based on the concept of performativity, which offered a more sophisticated conceptual ground than simple carnal transgression. Gender Trouble's basic argument 
is that Western society has created a regime of compulsory heterosexuality, phallogocentrism, which has sought to enforce a singular unitary notion of sex that crushes and obscures the true complexity and variation of biological sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, and human desire. Butler argues that even the word woman, though it relates to a biological reality, is a social construction and cannot be defined with any stable meaning or categorization. There is nothing essential about man, woman, or sex. They are all created and recreated through historically contingent human culture. As Butler puts it, they are all defined through their performance, which can change, shift, and adapt across time and space. Butler's theory of social change is that once the premise is established that gender is malleable and used as an instrument of power, currently in favor of heterosexual normativity, then the work of social reconstruction can begin. And the drag queen embodies Butler's theory of gender deconstruction. The performance of drag plays upon the distinction between the anatomy of the performer and the gender that is being performed. But we are actually in the presence of three contingent dimensions of significant corporeality, anatomical sex, gender identity, and gender performance. Butler writes, when such categories come into question, the reality of gender is also put into crisis. It becomes unclear how to distinguish the real from the unreal. And this is the occasion in which we come to understand what we take to be real. What we invoke as the naturalized knowledge of gender is, in fact, a changeable and revisable reality. Call it subversive or call it something else. Although this insight does not in itself constitute political revolution, no political revolution is possible without a radical shift in one's notion of the possible and the real. By the 2000s, the performance of drag had absorbed all these elements. The social justice origin story of William Dorsey Swan the carnal shock and awe of Gail Rubin, the ethereal postmodernism of Judith Butler, and brought them together onto the stage. The queer theorist Sarah Hankins, who performed extensive field research in drag bars in the Northeast, captured the spirit of this subculture and its ideology in a study for the academic journal signs. Drawing on the work of Reuben and Butler, Hankins describes three genres of drag, straight ahead, burlesque, and gender fuck that range from strip teases and lap dances to simulations of necrophilia, bestiality, and race fetishism. Hankins describes the world of drag as a socio-sexual economy, 
in which the members of queerdom can titillate, gratify, and reward one another with cash tips and money exchanges. As an audience member, I have always experienced the tip exchange as payment for sexual gratification, she wrote. And I am aware that by holding up dollar bills, I can satisfy my arousal at least partially. I can bring performers' bodies close to mine and induce them to touch me or let me touch them. Or as one of her research subjects, the drag queen Katya Zemolo Chakova puts it, I'm literally out there peddling my pussy for dollar bills. The goal of drag following the themes of Butler and Rubin is to obliterate stable conceptions of gender through performativity and to rehabilitate the bottom of the sexual hierarchy through the elevation of the marginal. The act of paying a dominant, domineering woman, a male supplicant, a hapless wage slave, or a boy allows the audience member to temporarily embody one or more of a number of bad or unnatural social positions. For instance, the pedophile, the closeted gay chicken hawk, the predatory female cougar, the sugar daddy or mama, even the sexualized youth child themselves, Hankin writes. And the discipline of gender fuck takes it a step even beyond the adult child sex. As Hankins describes, this style of performance foregrounds tropes of primitivism and degeneracy as tools of protest and liberation and seeks to subvert taboos against pedophilia, necrophilia, erotic object fetishism, and human-animal sex. These performances constitute the end of the line, the culmination of more than a century's work from the silk and satin drag balls to the hyper-cerebral politics of deconstruction to the annihilation of traditional notions of sex. The final turn in this story of drag is in some ways the most surprising. As the dark side of drag pushed transgression to the limit, another faction began moving from the margins to the mainstream. Some drag queens, most notably the drag performer RuPaul, toned down the routines, pushed the ideology deep into the background, and presented drag as good old-fashioned, glamorous American fun. Television producers packaged this new form of drag as reality programming, softening the image of the drag queen and assimilating the genre into mass media and consumer culture. This provided an opportunity as queer theorists' vanguard intellectual project was running aground on incest and bestiality fantasies. The most enterprising among them took a different tack. 
using the commercialization of drag and the goodwill associated with the gay and lesbian rights movement as a means of transforming drag performances into family-friendly events that could transmit a simplified version of queer theory to their children. I'm going to stop here and we'll resume next time with part three of the real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour. Don't miss it. This is Parents' Rights Now. Please check your show notes for links pertinent to this podcast. Please consider making a monthly contribution to Parents' Rights in Education. We need your help. We have big plans in mind. And because of a very generous one-time contribution of $25,000, we are challenging our listeners and our readers, all of our supporters, to match that. Gives $12 a month. If there were only 500 of you, that would tally up to $6,000 a month, almost tripling the $25,000 check we just received in one year. Be part of that club. We call it the 12 by 12 club. A link to our website is in the show notes or go to parentsrightsined.org. See you soon.